whoever is a member of the society, I want them to look into it and see what they want in front of them. That in a digital world is more possible than it is perhaps in our current format. But to be ready for that digital world, we need to start investing. We need to start doing stuff now to ensure that in the 20 years point, which isn't far away, we're providing whatever it is that we identify that they need and want from us at that point. Hi, I'm Belded Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm joined by Dave Edwards, Chief Executive of the Royal Aeronautical Society. We explore the challenges of keeping a 157-year-old organization relevant in a changing digital world while engaging younger generations and addressing environmental challenges. Well, Dave, welcome to the Purposeful Strategist. Um, very glad to have you with us. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. Could you, uh, perhaps just to get us going, tell us a little bit about yourself and also a bit about the Royal Aeronautical Society? Uh, sure. Well, uh, yeah, as you say, I am the chief exec of the Royal Aeronautical Society, so 157-year-old organization. My background's almost exclusively in aviation, something I fell into when I was about 14, and use the old line, I have no transferable skills, so I've stayed in it ever since. It's somewhere I absolutely love being. My career has taken me mostly into aircraft operations, so business jets, and then into commercial airlines. And then 2018, I started uh, running a trade association, which looked after the interests of air charter carriers. And then 2021, got the offer to come and head the society, where I've been a member since 99. So I know it both from the inside and the out. The society itself is, say, 157 years old. We're the only global organisation, really, that focuses on aviation, aerospace and space. Um, we're a learned society. We're also a professional engineering institution as well. Just for those who might not know, maybe even including me, what does a learned society do and how is that different from a professional association? It's a good question. There's various takes on what it does, but essentially we're an educator of note and we challenge status quo, I suppose, is a, a good way of putting it together. So we've got the Aeronautical Journal, which has been going for 125 years, I think, off the top of my head. And that is where academics come along, publish papers that do challenge the status quo of concepts that, that exist within aviation, aerospace and space. And so we publish that. And that's obviously a peer-reviewed academic journal. And then the learned side of it also covers our conferences, our lectures. During the course of the year, we have a routine of lectures on various topics. We have specialist groups within the society, depending on what your specific interest is. So it's bringing together people to educate them about our worlds effectively. And what would you say the purpose of the organization is? It's been around a long time. Interested to hear both what it was when it got started and what it is now and how it might have changed. If you think about 157 years ago being before anyone had taken to the skies in a powered aeroplane. So we were around before that and we were brought together a group of individuals uh, who wanted us to be in the skies. They met together to debate how it could be done. I quite often see it as a sort of room full of people shouting at each other really from one side to the other and, and debunking theories um, and together. Um, came to the point where we were able to you know put some ideas into to place and start the the race into the skies 
some of that's still there. Some of that, that kind of DNA is still around. We still have lots of meetings where we challenge those status quos. But really, it's a group of people coming together to share knowledge, to share experiences, to try and stop us making mistakes that we've made in the past again and things like that. So our purpose really these days is, for wanted to sum it up, I guess, sort of educate. So educating young people, young professionals as they're coming into the sector, middle career professionals, so helping them through the next stage of their career. And then obviously as you get towards retirement age, it's what you can put back into the world through the society. Our outreach work, going out and finding those kids all around the country who should look at us for careers, you know, some exciting jobs out there. And yeah, I guess the, that's the strategy at the moment is to focus on those and the fellowship side of it in terms of you know, uh, fellowship sounds better than networking, but bringing people together in our name to discuss and learn. Mm -hmm. Those sound like a good set of very worthwhile, valuable activities, but is there a bigger purpose, a bigger impact you're trying to make? You've been around for 157 years and you've succeeded at what you've been doing in terms of promoting aviation, aerospace and space to the world. So, some of those things didn't exist when we started. So the space is a, a latecomer, if you like. So the continuation of that, they are vital to the world. I hope most people would agree that those sectors, if they didn't exist, we'd be a poorer place for it. Our role and our purpose is to make sure that that's sustained and keep that next generation coming through to keep questioning things, to keep moving us forward. Um, sustainability it's obviously uh, an issue that continues to, to pervade everything about aviation, um, civil aviation, particularly. How are we going to fix those challenges? Those challenges are fixable, but they need the next generation to come through and help us and keep that work going. And without that sort of pipeline of talent coming through, we're not going to be able to continue to meet those challenges. So, yeah, we're here to promote the benefits of what we all do in our individual businesses, but make sure there's that talent stream coming through as well. Clearly, one of the issues you and the society must be grappling with as far as continuing aviation is the whole question of the environment and greenhouse gas and everything else. Where does that sit in your way of thinking about your purpose? There's lots of people in the industry working on that, or is there something more proactive you need to be doing? And the society has been proactive at it. I think our first committee on sustainability, which is our Greener by Design Committee, formed in about 1999, so ahead of the debate being discussed it's releasing a paper next week which is on the effect of contrails which is a, a particular part of the challenge that we've got as well which is eminently fixable in a lot shorter time scale than the technological developments that need to come so we've been pushing the boundaries on that for 20 years plus the challenges that sector has is that we're a very regulated body because of safety you can't cut corners just to achieve something but the exciting stuff that's coming next and the, the technology that's coming through when you look at battery technology, hydrogen, the potential of hydrogen propulsion, those kind of things help enormously towards the climate challenge we face. But we can't switch it off overnight pretty much because of the regulatory side. And there's an inordinate amount of investment that needs to go in. And there are firms that have been challenged extensively in the last couple of years with, with COVID. But there are firms that have been challenged for many years on trying to hit these technological milestones that we need to do. But it's coming. It's progressing very well. Is it at the pace that we'd all like? No, probably not. I think we'd all like it to happen a lot quicker. But there's regulation um, and safety is something that we just can't cut corners on, which is one of the slight delays to the response as well. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges that I think 
almost any organization has, but particularly ones like the Royal Aeronautical Society that's got such a long sort of legacy, a, a lot of sort of weight of tradition is how do we keep our purpose, you know, vibrant, relevant, alive? How are you going about doing that? Two things, really. I suppose when you've been around for this length of time, people don't notice the changes that you've been making because the incremental changes don't get as noticed. But if we shut our doors tomorrow, there would be 300 less apprentices going into the market. There would be no accredited degrees um, in aviation and aerospace engineering subjects. Um, there would be no medals and awards, which recognise some really good outstanding achievements. If you think back to our first gold medal was issued to the Wright brothers, you know, first people to fly. Government consultations, we respond to about 10 a year on all sorts of things that affect aviation, aerospace and space. We wouldn't get 3,000 people a year to come to hear the latest ideas from you know some of the greatest CEOs within our sectors. It, it, the, the list of kind of things that we do is endless. So when we're looking at a strategy for the future, you know the future of what a learned society or a professional membership body is, is challenged now because bringing people together and educating them, education is something that's available online for free. I would argue it's not as fact-checked as a learned society would provide you with. And in terms of networking, if you don't want to actually meet someone face-to-face, -face, then yeah, you know, social networking is a thing. Two nights ago, we had a corporate partner briefing on all of the latest eVTOL, so electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft um, technology, stuff that isn't out in the public domain. So, you know, really um, cutting edge stuff. And the, the mix and blend of people that were there gives me a lot of hope for the future that it wasn't just, you know, one or two individuals, probably like myself, slightly older, slightly greyer. It was a complete diverse number of people from across the uh, ages, backgrounds and everything. And the context that they all make there and the ability to question people, I just don't think you get that online. So the relevance project, to come back to that, is what we're doing at the moment. It started with our trustees. Uh, it's going out to our council. We have a, a different structure, obviously, to, to businesses. We have a, a board of trustees and a council, which is the uh, represents the industry and the sectors. And then we're going out to all the members. We're going out to stakeholders, so non-members, and understanding, you know, what do you want from the future? We're going out particularly to young people because 157 years, isn't very long. So if I need um, our society to be relevant to kids in 20 or 30 years, we need to start doing things now to ensure that we're there. So yeah, fully engaged conversation. And I can't think we're alone in that when it comes to professional bodies at the moment. Mm. So you use the phrase going out to, how are you actually going about that? I mean, if somebody w were listening to this and said, great, I want to do what Dave's doing, what's sort of the playbook, the recipe for that? I don't think we've done anything too revolutionary. So in terms of the trustees, we brought in external support for it. I don't think it's that we don't have the answers internally. I think if we were to, to just run it ourselves, we'd probably get there. But that expertise of the detached conversations has been really useful for us to actually put things on the table that none of us would have probably had the bravery to bring up. So that's been useful. The next stage of it is to take some of the information that came through our membership survey from last year and feed that back into some discussion on how we'll do it, because we'll be open to anybody to engage with. But breaking it down into smaller town halls or online forums or ways in which we can engage with the broad spectrum of, of all of the people we need to speak to to get their ideas and feedback. So we are 
I would say about a third of the way into the project at the moment. So it's currently ongoing. A few things are morphing, but that at the moment, that's how we'll be going out to uh, to involve as many people as we can in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And are you expecting that at the end of that, you'll have you know some sort of refreshed statement of what the purpose is and a strategy, or is it more focused on one or the other? It's more focused on the strategy. I I don't think the purpose of what we're trying to achieve is wrong. I think what our aim to become that global, um, the, the default source for information and support and community within aviation, aerospace and space, I don't think that needs to change. That's what we are. It's what we have pretty much always been. The strategy of how we do that in a modern emerging world has to change. And so, yeah, at the end of this project, I would hope that we start to build the future. Again, it, I realise people listening to this thinking, well, if it's a business, you just get on with it. But the 157-year-old legacy means that you have to do it incrementally because if I don't change anything for the members who are currently with us, we're fine. You know, as I say, I've been a member since 1999. I love the society. I love what we do. And I haven't left. Therefore, it's doing what I want it to do. My concern is that those kids coming through, the Generation Alphas, who have just about been born, when they come to a society in 20 years, are we going to be able to provide them with what they want? Whoever is a member of the society, I want them to look into it and see what they want in front of them. That in a digital world is more possible than it is perhaps in our current format. But to be ready for that digital world, we need to start investing. We need to start doing stuff now to ensure that in the 20 years point, which isn't far away, we're providing whatever it is that we identify that they need and want from us at that point. You know, it sounds like in the work you're doing there, you're kind of touching on a topic that I've begun to hear other chief execs, particularly of professional associations, beginning to talk about, which is kind of what's that model really look like in the future? Because many professional associations, they sort of all work in the same way. They kind of have all the same stuff. And there's a question, I think, as you say, 20 years from now, are people still going to be doing that? Or are they going to be doing it in a completely different way? And if so, what does that look like? And what do we have to do now to to get ready? Yeah, I, I quite often joke that, you know, my next hire should actually be a psychologist because, you know, I, I need to understand what those kids who aren't yet born were once, which is a crazy thing that I've never dealt with in my career until now. The thought of, you know, how on earth are we going to shape ourselves for something for the future that we don't actually know what it is yet? All we know is it's going to be a much more digital environment than we're providing today, which comes at a cost. And, you know, then you get into how would we fund that? Because we're talking about probably significant investment to turn us into that digital world. But yeah, there are challenges ahead that if we don't adjust to that, I think we will all be scared quite quickly. Our membership survey has been really positive. It shows a lot of support for the society and what we do, which is brilliant. And the, you know, the amount of volunteering we're getting, the support from the members remains as high as it's ever been. Just my slight concern, and I have to be the the sort of the, the scared one of the bunch because it's my job and I'm, I'm supposed to be here doing this, is worrying about, you know, if we suddenly start seeing a tailing off of, of 20-year-olds. So we most membership bodies have a, a blip at around the 21 to 25 where you get people coming in. Life takes over. We all understand that. You have to pay your mortgage and things. And then as you get to uh, sort of mid-career, you start to engage more again. 
my concern remains that if by the time we notice that the sort of student apprentice level diminishing, the impact of that when it comes to their return in the mid thirties will actually be really significant really quickly. So that's what is what worries me. And that's the relevance project to me is making sure that we keep the engagement with a younger bunch of, of people coming into the society so that that never diminishes. That stays as high as it's, it's ever been. That's the focus for me. One other kind of aspect I wouldn't mind just getting your thoughts on is the global nature of the society and what seems to me a somewhat common pattern of you got started in the UK, but you're serving a global kind of issue. Interesting to know what percent of your members are still predominantly UK. What does that dynamic look like? Off the top of my head, it's about 70% UK-based. The rest are international. We've got divisions in South Africa, uh, Pakistan. We're represented all around the globe. We're in uh, North America. We're in Canada. We're in um, Australia and New Zealand. Um, we're over in Hong Kong. Uh, we're in Dubai, in the UAE. So it, it is a fully international society. Aviation particularly is a small world. So that's been quite an easy way for us to, to keep in touch with the divisions. The future, I mean, one of our strategic aims is to continue to grow our global presence. And there are emerging areas around the world within our sectors that are vital to us. We're doing work already to engage more in in those particular countries where they tend to be more around new emerging technologies within our sectors. But the world is getting smaller. I mean, COVID was actually probably quite a highlight for us because we moved everything online. And I think if you'd have asked any member of the society in 2019, do you think we'll ever do online lectures? Pretty sure the answer would have been no chance at all. You know, that's not how we work. So we, we morphed very quickly into to an online world. We've continued it. So a lot of the branches around the UK and internationally provide online lectures, but hybrid, so you can turn up as well. Uh, returning um, to hybrids has been slow but increasing more people are coming back starting to see the value of being in person again however it has made uh, accessibility amazing when you're talking to branches in Prestwick uh, in the north of Scotland or in the west of Scotland who are saying that they're getting people attending from South Africa and South Korea and you think well you know that's great because it's making the world smaller it's increasing that spread of knowledge our aerospace sector is obviously very dispersed but it does have sectors which are specialists in particular areas so getting someone to talk to the branch in Prestwick about um, let's go with air traffic control and how it works on the North Atlantic is relatively easy because the control center is up by Prestwick the chances of that person coming to do a lecture in Dubai about North Atlantic traffic or going across to the states fairly limited well now you know we're getting people attending those lectures and learning more. We're spreading the, the, the learned content around. So it's highlighting how important it is for us to be an online community and it's highlighting how important it is for people to be in person learning from each other still. So it's something that potentially we need to keep thinking about what that future will be. Mm-hmm. I get the sense from what you're saying. It's almost a moment where new possibilities are opening up or at least appear to be opening up. And then there's always that difficult question of, so how much do we lean into these new possibilities? Which ones are actually going to be enduring, you know, be sustainable? Which are going to 
be a blip and fizzle out? Always, I think, a, a difficult set of strategic questions. Yeah, I'm, I'm answering your questions thinking, you know, if you come back and talk to me in two years' time, I'll probably have a much clearer impression because COVID ended, but it's still very much around. It's around in all of our work. It affects everything we do. I can't at the moment still predict things in the way that we could do in the past. I might make an assumption that we'll get 100 people to that meeting or lecture. 10 people will turn up. We have, you know, like everybody, dropouts at the last minute. It just seems a very fluid world at the moment. People making different decisions in different ways. I think in two years down the line, I'll have a much clearer impression of what we need to be doing for the future based on what we're actually seeing rather than, you know, crystal ball gazing, which is a lot of the work that we're doing is how would we respond if this happens? And when you're trying to define a strategy, you want a little bit more certainty to build that on. I can't invest a load of money on an if. I need to be what to make those decisions. So at the moment, there's a lot of groundwork going into what our strategy can be. There does seem to be the possibility, which, depending on how it strikes you, could be either really exhilarating and exciting or frightening and, you know, sort of depressing. <laughs> Mildly daunting. Well, it, it does seem to me that Two years from now, the conclusion we might all have kind of collectively come to is it's just going to be like this. You know, as things have become more digital, they're more fluid, there's less friction for anything. The range of possible outcomes is still pretty high. You, yeah. you know, you can't predict. And yet somehow in the midst of that, you've still got to make decisions. You're still going to move forward. I don't think any of us know which way it's going to go on that. No, and the, the conversations I have are... are I come back to the psychology thing. I, I hear myself asking questions to people in our branches, in our committees, in our boards, and thinking, that's actually quite a loaded question you're asking there. And it didn't need to be, but you're trying to just look for that glimmer of support of what your assumptions are. You know, I'm, I'm thinking this is the future. I'll sense check that with some other people just to make sure that they all go, no, that's completely wrong. Okay, right, let's learn from that. Um, you're braver than I if you're able to save, you know what's going to happen tomorrow. But we've got a plan for the future and um, I can't see it changing much from where it is today. I think COVID has moved us all forward in a different way and we probably need to be ready for that rather than going back to what we had before. My general rule is it never goes back. No, precisely. As you've been on this journey and you're partway through it, what's been most surprising to you, just sort of working your way through it? I think there is a daunting role to take over because, you know, you don't want to break it at the end of the day, do you? It's been around for a lot longer than I've been. So when I'm going around and having these conversations, I'm surprised by the support for for looking at different things and looking at different ways to do things. You know, the society of 2015 didn't look a great deal different to the society of 1995, I guess, when I started looking at it. And arguably probably wasn't much different to the society of 1950s before it. So the change now is is coming so quickly and so rapidly that um, I'm mildly surprised but happy by the fact that people are open to discussions and debates about how we stay relevant because ultimately I want us to be here in 300 years. That's got to be a good aim. You know, we've done it this far. We're in a good position. We're still doing what we set out to achieve. The world will change around all of us. So how do we keep remaining in that position where we're still relevant, making sure that everybody in the 26,000 members knows what we do and the stakeholders around it. It's quite a challenge to make sure that, that everyone does know what we do. But I like the fact that we do really relevant, cutting edge, you know, funky stuff, really. I like that. 
Mm -hmm. What's been the most difficult part of it all so far? Uh, resourcing, without a shadow of a doubt, all of us had to be very safe and secure and protect all of our organisations. It wasn't just us. We went through quite a redundancy round during COVID. We're quite short of free time, I suppose. So the biggest one at the moment is just resource. One of the tensions I see many organisations, professional bodies, commercial businesses wrestling with is this tension between, on the one hand, wanting to be efficient wanting to make sure we don't have any fat, you know, we've leaned everything down to cover the BAU. And yet I'd argue that for most organizations, the balance between BAU and doing new things, change, the unpredictable, whatever you want to call it, is shifting away from BAU. Yeah, um, I think particularly now, this isn't just the moment where any business post-COVID and post the world changing, it's big strategic changes. It's not just incremental steps, which previous strategies were you know if i look at our strategy at the moment compared to the one that is in existence for 10 years before that some similarities nothing dramatic in those changes i don't think we'll see dramatic change in the next strategy but i think it will be really different things that we're needing to focus on for the future yeah that's not just a sort of well, i'll fit it in around the edge of my day you know, do it on the train home that kind of thing and that really is why we needed to bring you know, some additional support in to discuss it with us, just so we weren't going down the route of, well, we'll just shine it a bit more. That's all we'll need to do. Uh, this is, you know, it's an investment for the future. So it's um, it's quite a big, a big moment for us. Particularly as you've been into this work on the Relevance Project, has there been anything that you'd say, oh, I kind of learned something new in the midst of that? Definitely. 18 months into the role, I'm learning new things about the society every day. So the interactions of how it all works, how the volunteer journey fits into the strategy as well, because the vast majority of volunteers aren't in it for two decades. They're in it for four or five years at a time. So far, it's been a really positive experience because I think I can see some things coming out of it. There's nothing showstoppery in the way that we've gone about it. We're not doing anything horrifically bad that you know is a, an emergency fix needed. If I was to do it all again, I think I'd probably work on how do we allocate either additional bandwidth to it or how do we bring in somebody on a you know, on a contract or whatever to help us with the strategy, because it's a bigger piece than I think probably most of us had thought it would be. And not through negligence or anything like that. It's just the COVID thing. You know, It's just changed so much. You know, all of the assumptions we were making just oh, well, actually, I'm not sure that's going to work. And I'm not sure doing it like that would be you know, something that's relevant for the future. So, yeah, I think just more bandwidth would have been what I would have planned. Yeah. And what advice might you give to a leader in some other organization that was grappling with questions around their purpose and their strategy and how do you connect the two? Talking's great. I would definitely say go out and talk to people who've done it before for starters mm -hmm. because we've all made mistakes, so it's useful to learn from those. The bringing in of independent thought has been useful because, like I say, it's just if you bring in a set of trustees, particularly of a long-standing body, you know, nobody wants to be the ones that change it all completely. And I think a strategic discussion should be fully frank and open and honest. And let's talk about everything. And nothing should be off the table because that's what a strategy is. You shouldn't just be trying to 
tweak everything all the time. You should look at what do we need to do to make sure that we're we're still going in a hundred years from now. So that bringing in that independent advice and thought to just ask the questions that you know maybe one of the trustees would be a bit scared of making, or I would think, God, this might feel like a bit of a step too far. So get that sort of independent thought in the room as well. That was one of the best things that we've done so far, I would say. But talk to people. I'm spending a lot of time with other CEOs of other institutions because there's a lot of similarities between all of us and the way that we run. Sure. And what haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? What haven't we touched on that we ought to? Um, That's a good question. It's not necessarily relevant to strategy per se but some people ask me what it's like to be a ceo and the response i give is that when everything goes wrong every single face turns to you to go what are we going to do and i guarantee you that not every ceo knows the answer to things as well so in terms of you know how does that play into strategy and things like that the importance of having a good team around you who actually understand how you think, understand more about your business than probably you ever will, but are able to sort of counsel you on your thoughts is really useful because the CEO role is the loneliest in the world. It's great. It's one of the best things in my career, but it's also the loneliest job in the world. And so having a great team around you invariably is the best thing. So just make sure the team around you are the best people you can get. That's great advice. Dave, again, thank you for joining us. Some of what you covered I knew, some was new even to me, which is always great, and I'm sure going to be very helpful to people listening. I hope so too, and maybe see you in two years to tell you what we did. (laughs) Would love to. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.